0: Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you know our ways and how prone we are to forgetting your goodness, the glory of Christ, and our desperate need for salvation in him each and every day. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've prescribed means of grace just like this, that we might as a people gather together and sing together and pray together. And that you would use a sinner like me to open up your word and by your spirit proclaim the gospel through it. We ask, Father, that you would be glorified this day in us, in this church. That you would cause each and every one of us to remember that which we have forgotten. To recall that moment when you came and you made us alive by your spirit when we profess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believed in our heart that you did in fact raise him from the dead. We pray, Father, that you would quicken us to a sense of urgency for those who have yet to hear that they might remember. For anyone here, Father, who does not know Christ, I ask that you would be gracious this day to cause them to repent and believe and be saved. Help us, Father, to hear the words from Exodus chapter 12 and not grow weary of the details, but to see how the details fit into the cross and the gospel of Christ. Help us to see, Lord, how we are to carry over these same principles in our lives this day, even as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray, Father, for a transformation of heart and minds. We've gathered here not to be religious. We want to know you. We want to hear you. We want to be changed by you. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd be gracious to do just that. Leave us forever changed, Lord. Let us not walk out of this building the same as we walked in, knowing full well that we cannot come into the presence of you, the living God, and worship you and not be changed. We pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who have gathered here in the South Bay, all the Christians and all the true churches that have gathered for this same purpose, that they might glorify you. We pray specifically for Emmaus this morning, Lord, and we pray for Pastor Aaron as he'll be preaching and proclaiming the gospel of grace to those who have gathered to hear him. We pray, Lord, for his encouragement. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up many on the east side of San Jose to do a mighty work. We pray, Lord, that you would use the teaching and preaching today and their gathering to sanctify the saints at Emmaus and to send them out into that community that they might reach far and wide into those dark places that people might hear the gospel and be saved. We are so thankful, Father, for this opportunity to have your word. It's been preserved for us. I pray you would help me to be faithful to it. In Christ's holy name, amen. <clears throat> when I sing too loudly, my voice starts to go. But I, 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 I love that time so much. If you don't sing loudly when we're singing, and you don't have to preach then shame on you. You should be singing louder. Exodus chapter 12, if you don't have your Bibles opened up, please do so. Um, I hope that as Tim was reading it, you didn't say to yourself, oh my goodness, the details, the details. Um, Every single word that's in the Bible, we believe to be there by the Holy Spirit, and therefore, they're important words. They're important words. And so, by God's grace, this morning, we'll have a chance to work our way through it, And you will leave here, I hope, blessed, um, maybe a bit convicted, maybe greatly encouraged, maybe saved by grace, depending upon your station right now. I would argue, the older I get, that one of the most damaging aspects of the fall is the difficulty of remembering, and certainly remembering things that are true or eternal truths that come from God. We have a tendency, our flesh has a tendency to forget who God is who we are in relationship to God. We forget who Christ is and the great work that He accomplished on the cross. We forget that we are now in Christ holy as He is holy. We forget that we are sons and daughters right now awaiting His glorious return. And the older we get, or at least the older I get, I find it uncanny how I can remember the silly non-essential things in life. Things that I don't really want to remember and they're stuck there, but I can't Seem to recall the more important things. I can tell you the cubic displacement on the first engine of the first car that I bought. I can tell you word for word silly lines from movies that I wish I had never seen. I can remember the lyrics of songs that my parents used to listen to over and over again. And I could describe to you, I think, quite well the smell of my grandmother's baked beans. These are not essential for my soul. Some good, some not so good. When it comes to remembering the eternal things, our flesh is quick to forget. And I don't think that's just an aging process. I think that's part of the spiritual battle. If we can get you to forget, then you will not worship God rightly. The psalmist, in an effort to overcome his depression, sought to remember these eternal truths. Listen to this, Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Then he says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. So even in a state of extreme depression, the psalmist realized, i got to remember who God is. I have to remember who I am in God. As we pick up here in the story in Exodus chapter 12, we're going to find our Heavenly Father being so gracious with his people he knows we're prone to forget. And so he establishes for them a feast. Right here, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of the Passover. They're one and the same. We'll talk about that in a minute. On the fourth day of the month of Nisan, which was the first month of their new year, remember they reset their calendar based upon this historic event. On the first day, the 14th, they were going to have a holy assembly. They were not going to work they were going to worship the living God, and then in seven days they'd do the same thing. They'd bookended on the 21st, a holy gathering, and they would not work, and during that entire seven days, they would be leaven-free. Now leaven, you know it probably is yeast, that which makes dough rise. If you like pizza, you like leaven, at least good leaven. He has his people do this for seven days, for centuries, that they might remember the historical event when Yahweh set them free and redeemed them as a people. It is my hope that we can take this same passage and we can bring it forward into the cross of Christ and we can see that God causes us to remember every time we gather, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are called to remember the great work that Christ accomplished in freeing us from sin and death and redeeming us as the very people of God. So I hope you're excited to hear about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You've never thought about it before. You'll think about it more now than maybe you have in the past. Three things I want to look at. Number one, how we are to remember our faith. Number two, how we're to teach our faith. And number three, how we're to express it. Remembering our faith, teaching our faith, and expressing our faith. Number one, remembering our faith. The Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover celebration was the first of three annual celebrations God gave for His people to remember And we can argue that it was the most important. It was the one that was going to establish the foundation upon which how God redeems fallen man. It was established as a memorial day, a day that we are to remember forever. And as I said, on the 14th day, they would have the Passover lamb be slaughtered. They would celebrate with a holy convocation, a holy gathering. They would cease from working. It would be a Sabbath day. And then for seven days, there'd be no leaven in the house. They would eat no leaven. They'd have no leaven, no yeast. And then they'd come back on the 21st day, and they would worship God again. They would not work, and they would praise Him. They were instructed clearly not to eat any unleavened bread and not to have any yeast or any leaven of any kind in their entire home. Now you think, well, that's a, it's a strange command, and it is a bit, and we'll look at why He gave it but I want you to notice the seriousness of it. In verse 15, it said, if anybody eats any leaven during those seven days of the feast or has any inside the house, they're to be cast out of Israel, and then he repeats it again in verse 19, cut off from the congregation of Israel. That seems extreme that God would cast someone out of his covenant community for having a little bit of bread with a little bit of yeast. So why did God use unleavened bread as the central piece in the feast of the Passover lamb. What was the purpose of the feast, and why are the penalties so severe? I pray that as you read through your scriptures, you don't say, oh, yeah, well, of course, you eat a little bit of bread, you're cast out. That doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. So you want to dig a little bit deeper so you understand what it was and what it is that God is doing. We saw last week that with the Passover meal, they ate unleavened bread. And we saw the primary purpose of that was they were to eat in haste. And if you've ever made anything with yeast in it, you have to wait a while. You have to wait for the dough to rise. Well, there was no waiting for the Passover. It was to come, they were to be ready, sandals on, belts on, staff in hand, ready to go. So he said, no yeast, so you can mix it, you can cook it, and you can eat it. So essentially they were eating all the flatbread that's now such a popular thing in our cultural moment. I can't stand flatbread. I don't know about you. I like bread with a lot of, a lot of substance to it. Um, so they were eating their flatbread, and God was showing that they, in doing this, the, their forefathers exercised their faith in God. They were saying, we're ready to go, Lord. We're going to have our sandals on, our belts on, our staff in hand. We're going to eat our unleavened bread and our bitter herbs, and we're ready to go. But there's another reason here, which you probably already know. Yeast in the Bible is often correlated with sin, oftentimes, Old and New Testament. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus said, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, dealing with a very difficult church discipline situation, he made a distinction between holy and unholy living. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, leaven was free here in the seven days of this particular ceremony to worship holy living, that they were going to go seven days remembering that they were to be called out of the influence of the Egyptians, particularly the idolatry and the paganism, and they were to be a new people living with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So why would God say do it annually, every year, for every generation, forever? We talked last week, this is the supreme sign in the Old Testament. The Passover was the supreme sign of how God, the holy Yahweh, was going to redeem sinful people through the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb. This was the means. This must be remembered because this is the heart of the gospel. That just as the the, uh, Israelites in Egypt were redeemed through the blood of their sacrificial lamb, all of God's people for all human history have been redeemed through the blood of the lamb of Christ. And so this could not be forgotten. Their freedom and redemption would come. And so it was imperative that they remembered. But I want you to think a little harder. You said, okay, then why not just have like a moment of silence? Annually gather the, the nation together, and we will spend two minutes as we do here in a moment of silence remembering the great work. God establishes a very detailed feast, seven full days. There's fasting, there's work, there's no work involved, there's leavened bread, there's a sacrificial lamb, there are bitter herbs, much in the process. Why all the detail? God did not want them to just remember it, He wanted them to relive it. He wanted them to relive, as He said in verse 14, a feast to the Lord. In other words, he's looking for an indelible mark. He wants to stamp their conscience with the great work that he's going to accomplish here and ultimately accomplish on the cross of Christ. And so the primary purpose of the feast of unleavened bread was not just commemoration, it was participation. Now this is really important. So if you're not listening closely, I want you because that's what we do every time we gather is we participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In their traveling, they would see, in their experience, this incredible movement of the Holy Spirit doing a work on them, even in their desert times, as they remembered these great promises. Faith is always demonstrated through faithfulness. Always. In other words... The proof of your faith is not what you say so much. It's how you live. Do you live a faithful life? The participation, the creation of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was an opportunity for them to not only remember, but participate in their faith in the same God who did the great work with their forefathers centuries before. So the proof of if someone said or my wife said, you are a faithful husband. What would be the proof of that? It would not be my saying to her, I'm a faithful husband. It would be my loving her as Christ loved the church. It would be my sacrificing for her and serving for her. It would be her being my wife alone. And in that, she could then say, you are a faithful husband. You can say that because of the way you live. It's the same for those of us who have employers. If you are a faithful employee, it's not just because you say you are. A faithful employee will arrive to work on time. They will work when they're supposed to be working. They will submit to their earthly master to the degree that doesn't violate the word of God. They will work as unto the glory of God. There'll be a living testimony in the workplace. If that's how you work, then you can say, I'm a faithful worker by how I live, not because I say I'm faithful. Same is true with our faith. By participating in the feast of the unleavened bread, They were able to say we are faithful and we're expressing our faith too. We are believing in the same God and the same promises. Every time we participate, if you know Christ and you participate in the Lord's Supper, every single time you take that bread that represents his broken body and you drink the juice, you are not just remembering. Christ commanded that. He said, do this in what? In remembrance of me, you are participating. You're participating in his death and his resurrection. You're recalling that Jesus Christ climbed upon that cross so that all those who repent and believe could be saved. You are recalling that He shed His blood that you, a sinner who deserved to die, can be saved. So you're remembering all this and you're participating in the freedom and the redemption that He brings through His broken body and His spilled blood. In other words, you're not just remembering, you're expressing your faith too. Just as the Israelites stayed inside, and they said, all right, Lord, we believe that you're going to pass over us. When you take the elements that represent the broken body and spilled blood of Christ, you're saying, I believe you will pass over me. I believe that you will spare me because I put my faith in Christ. In other words, your faith is being expressed in action. And you know it goes way beyond this table. It goes way beyond a Sunday morning where you gather and you eat a little bit of bread and you drink a little bit of juice. We are called to, as Paul said, to live unleavened lives, pursuing holiness daily as we express our faith in love. That's why the Israelites were cut off if they ate leavened bread or had leaven in their home. God was not being particularly harsh. You understand what was happening. For them to disobey the direct will, the direct commands of God, they are saying to God, we do not believe, we do not have faith. And so in fact, they were already cast out of the community of faith by their actions. A lack of faithfulness to the hearing and the believing and the obeying of God's word, listen, is a lack of faith. You know that. A lack of faithfulness to God's word means you do not have faith. It is a sign for those who profess Christ but do not walk in the ways of the Lord that they do not belong to the covenant community either. You see, the priority in God's kingdom is never, ever the particulars. It's not that they're unimportant, but the eating or not eating of unleavened bread, the having or not having of yeast in the house, the taking or not taking of the Lord's Supper, With God, it's always, always a matter of the heart. Always. And these are means of grace by which we remember and by which we express our faith, but it's the heart that matters before God. And He knows your heart. He knows you through and through. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. At the heart of unfaithfulness is a refusal to obey a faithful God. Knowing what to do, listen saints, please, knowing the will of God and not doing it is a faithless life. Knowing what you ought to do and doing the opposite is not living by faith. That's living by the flesh. And so God graciously establishes these memorial days because He knows how prone we are to forget. My beloved, there are days I... Last night I was trying to sweep up, we had a few people over, I was trying to sweep up in the backyard, I took the, the, the dust broom out, and I took the dust pan, and I set it down, and I walked around for 10 minutes trying to find it again. I thought, I cannot believe, I cannot remember where I put it two minutes ago. Now, if I'm prone to forget that, then certainly I'm prone to forget these glorious eternal truths. We celebrate our wedding anniversaries not just because we want to pay $5 for an expensive card. We celebrate our wedding anniversaries to remember the vows that we made to participate in that act of faith, right? For those of us who celebrate birthdays well, we do that to honor God for bringing that person's life into being. For those of you who celebrate the 4th of July correctly, you are remembering those who gave their life that you might have freedoms like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So we get this concept of remembering God gives it to us that we might not just remember, but affirm what we say we believe. Not just in words, but in actions. Not just by taking the elements, but by living them out, unleavened lives. And that's why our church is very careful about the Lord's Supper. We're very careful about it. It's a big deal in the church. Listen, to participate in the Lord's Supper, that's why Paul gives the warning in 1 Corinthians 11. To participate in the Lord's Supper, what you are saying before God and man is that I have entered into a covenant relationship with the Father through the Son. You're saying that I have entered into a covenant relationship or I'm pursuing a relationship with the body of Christ here on earth. And by, by have the church allowing you to take it, they're saying we recognize that person as a card-carrying member of the Christian community. When the church says, yes, take this, they are affirming your profession too. So you have an affirmation, and the church has an affirmation, and God is glorified in the entire process. So first I pray you see that this Feast of Unleavened Bread is a call to remembrance and participation. Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Teaching our faith. Look at verses 21 and through 23. This is kind of a recap of the teaching from last week. Moses is telling the elders so they can go tell the people so they can actually live. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Now listen to this. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will allow the destroyer, will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So we have the clear instructions repeated from last week. They're to kill the sacrificial lamb, they're to take hyssop, which was you could use it kind of like a paintbrush, and they were to dip it into the basin of the bowl of blood that caught the blood from the sacrificial lamb, and then they were to paint the entire doorframe of the entrance to their homes, and in doing so, last week, God said what? It was a sign for, for them. God didn't need to see it. He knew, but they needed to see it. They needed to have a practical expression of their faith, and it was the blood upon the door that they were doing what? Remember, they didn't flee the land. They stayed. They said, all right, Lord, we're going to stay inside the house. We're going to put blood in the doorframe, and we are going to trust you to have mercy on us. You're going to come through. You're going to pass over. The destroyer will pass over and kill all the firstborn in all the land except anyone who has the blood of the sacrificial lamb over their door. And so they are trusting in God to do this. God says, I'm going to come. I'm going to send the destroyer. Now, there have been questions on this. Was it God or was it the destroyer? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. The destroyer is the angel of the Lord. Very likely, 2 Samuel chapter 24, Isaiah 37, several other examples of the angel of Yahweh, the angel of God. So it was God in the form of an angel exercising judgment upon Egypt, all the firstborn, and exercising mercy and grace upon Israel, all those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. But then Moses moves beyond this original audience, and I want you to see what he does. He casts his gaze upon you upon future generations. Look at verse 24. Moses now, again, speaking to the elders. You shall observe this rite. The rite is the Passover meal, the feast of unleavened bread. You shall observe this rite as a statute, a law for you and for your sons for how long? Forever. And this is just to go from generation to generation. It was to be taught without exception. Look at verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, that is the promised land, As he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? you shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And so God, through Moses, through the elders, commands the people, Don't just remember, remember and relive, and don't just relive, relive and tell. Tell your children. Tell the generations to come of the great work that God is going to do to set them free and redeem them as a people. Look at verse 26. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? The parents have an answer. Or they better have an answer. The parents are supposed to explain to them that they have been saved by grace through faith in what? In the blood of a sacrificed lamb. You say, that sounds just like the gospel. And that's exactly why it was so important. Verse 27, you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. This is the gospel of salvation. This is the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in the blood of the lamb. And the parents were supposed to tell their children that again and again and again. In other words, the Israelites are saying, yes, we were chosen, but the only way we were saved was through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. They were chosen. They were set apart by God, indeed to be redeemed, but it wasn't for free. The grace comes freely, but the sacrifice was through the Lamb. And they were to know this, and they were to recognize that their firstborns lived Because God was gracious. They were to know this and they were to tell their children the same eternal truth. We put the blood on the doorway. We stayed inside the house. The angel of death came and we were spared. You know why they were to tell them that? If it is the gospel, they were to tell generation after generation so when the Messiah finally came, they would know who it was. It was told from generation to generation because when the human divine Lamb of God who came away to take away the sins of the world, when He came, they wouldn't miss Him. And that's why this command was given. That's why the feast was granted that they might remember and be prepared to accept His death and His resurrection and His blood that they might have eternal life. Now the parallels here, my beloved, for Christian parents are not hard to find. And if you are a parent or a grandparent, or you know any parents, or you know any children. That would be all of us. We should hear this. We are responsible, parents. The same command stands with us to tell our children, to teach our children. Now, the evangelical church, at least in the Western world, we have been given this command, and we've neglected it, and given it to the church or to Christian schools. We think that somehow VBS or youth groups or Christian schools will do what God has ordained and commanded parents to do. And I hope you're not offended by this, parents. But it is your responsibility and indeed your great blessing. You see, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, as Jesus was preparing to leave, the disciples were a bit frantic. They said, we can't remember what you told us. We don't know what we're going to teach. And Jesus said, relax, relax. 1327, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then of course we know at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. That means, my beloved, every Christian, every parent, every grandparent is suited and equipped to raise their children in the faith. No exception. No exception. In the context of our passage, it means, parents, when your children ask you, why do you eat that little tiny piece of bread that certainly is not going to fill you, and why do you drink that little tiny cup of juice that certainly is not going to quench your thirst, when they ask you that, just like the parents through the generations from the command of Moses, you will tell them, this is my life. Through this broken bread here, it represents the body of Christ, and this juice represents the blood of Christ, and he is my sacrificial lamb, and it's through my faith in him that I can live. You'll, you'll tell them that, will you not? Yes, you will. I pray you will. You will explain to them clearly that Jesus died on the cross so you could live. He died so you could be set free from the bondage of sin and death. He died so you could be redeemed, brought all the way in as a son or daughter into the kingdom of God. You will tell your children, he died, that I might reign with him one day that I might be seated with Christ at the right hand in the fulfillment of God's holy, glorious plan and reign with Him forever and ever. Oh, my goodness, parents, what an incredible responsibility and what a great blessing. I had Tim read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is a standing command upon all Christians. I'll read it again. here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. First and greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So parents, know it and live it. And then he says in verse 6, And these words that I commanded you today shall be, listen, on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be on the frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and of your gates. In other words, saturated homes, gospel saturated homes. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, Jesus Christ, sacrificial lamb, always upon our hearts and minds. So, dads and moms of all ages, it does not matter how old your children are. This responsibility and blessing is still yours. My older two boys are both married. One with a daughter, making me a grandfather, and I can't wait to teach her Deuteronomy six. My oldest boy, I still meet with at least every other week to train him in the faith. He's twenty-three. My middle boy is twenty-one. I meet with him at least every other week to train him in the faith. Why? I'm commanded to. I want to. My youngest son, Joshua, almost every day, he's hearing the gospel from dad. And it's not because I'm a pastor. I am commanded to train him in the faith, to show him Christ, to show him the holiness of God, the depth of his sin, the need to repent and believe and be saved. Dads and moms, when you come before the living God to give an account for your life, First of all, Dad, you're going to be asked to give an account for how well you loved your wife as Christ loves the church. I'll be first. Wives, the first thing you'll be asked is how well you are a helpmate in loving and supporting your husband. The second question, parents, you're going to get is what you do as stewards of the children that God gave you. So they're not ours. They're not ours. They belong to God and they're given to us to be stewards of them. And so you'll be asked by God, did you train them up in the faith? It will be a legitimate question. It will be a real question and you need to give a truthful answer. I'm not sure is not a good answer. Kind of, but not really. Not a good answer. God will want to know if early on you truly love them unconditionally. I mean, you loved them. You expressed that love for them. You spent time with them. You played with them. You enjoyed them. He'll want to know that. Did you truly care for them? And as they begin to grow, he will want to know whether or not you train them in the faith. Did you discipline them properly in a biblical fashion? Did you disciple them properly? 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 is not just for pastors. Parents, did you reprove them? Did you rebuke them? Did you exhort them with complete patience and teaching? Yes or no? He will want to know. God will want to know on that day, parents, if you were faithful in reading the Bible to them. Reading to them extensively as they get older, ensuring that they are fully engaged in the life of the church. This is the body of Christ. Do you have your children saturated in the life of the church? If you ask my three boys, they'll know nothing other than life in the church. I was not raised in the church. We have a very different experience. Do your children know that? When the doors are open, they're here with you. Older yet, sharing with them the gospel constantly, calling them to repentance and faith constantly, reminding them that they are sinners, no matter how cute they are, that they are sinners in need of repentance and faith and salvation in Christ. Are you telling them that from a very early age that they need Christ to be saved? Parents, are you getting them involved in ministry around the church Yes, I know it's harder, and it takes a little bit longer, but how glorious if the children begin to participate at an early age. My children went to hospital visits with me. They worked on sprinklers with me. We worked on widow's cars together. And it was glorious, and it was harder, and it took me longer. But that's part of the training process. Raise them up in the faith. Now listen, this is where it gets hard. I I pray you don't disengage. Parents, it means you got to die to yourself. Moms, it means you must reject the cultural pressure to get that advanced degree, to be successful in that career, to have the perfect house, the perfect body, and the perfect wardrobe. That is not your primary calling as mom. Your primary calling as mom is from Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up your child in the way they should go, and when they are older, they will not depart from the faith. That's it. It means you will put the souls of your children, whom God gave you, to make disciples out of, above your ambitions for school and work and comfort. And dads, it's the same for you. You are to work. The Bible commands to sustain your family. But getting the promotion, acquiring that advanced degree, improving your portfolio or your golf game at the expense of training up your children is nothing less than sinful. Dads, you have to train up your children in the faith. Now, I know the culture tells us differently. This area in particular tells moms and dads listen, you can do it all. Oh, yeah, you can go to school, get the advanced degrees, you can work full time, you can have the perfect house, you can exercise, you can do all that you need to do and train your children in the way of the faith. It's a lie. It's a lie. If you haven't figured that out yet, I pray you do, but sooner rather than later, for the sake of your children. It's a lie. I know that living here, it's expensive. And a lot of parents have to both work. But I also believe that there's an element of that where we lack faith. My Lord said in Matthew chapter 6, O ye of little faith, I, He says, I do not. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows, knows that you need them all. And then he says in verse 33, a verse you all know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these commands will be given to you. God commands mothers and fathers to train up their children. Do that. Keep it simple. And he will provide. He will provide. When Lori and I had our oldest son, Kirk, we were both working. I was in teaching. She was in radio. Neither of us were making much money to sustain our lives here. We had to both work. And we were both convicted by several passages, including Deuteronomy 6. And we concluded, well, we're not doing this right. We had just purchased a home. And I said to my wife, you've got to quit, and you've got to raise our kids to know Christ. And we can't do it, when we're both working. And so she did. And God was faithful. God was faithful. I was making a whopping $29,000 a year, and we owned a home. And that first year, after she quit, we saved more money in that first year than we had in the previous five. Don't ask me how. God is faithful. Submit and obey. God is faithful. We have had families over the years here leave this area because they said, we can't afford it. Dad saying, I want... I want my wife to stay home and raise my children. And they make a good choice. And I, it's hard seeing Christians leave this ministry area. We need more workers. But if, if parents are going to say, you know what, we cannot do it here, and it's not optional to not train up our children, then it's okay, we will leave. And we'll say, go, go, find a place where moms can raise their children to know and love and serve Christ. Because the soul of the child is infinitely more important than your house or your degree or your job. You can see that I'm a bit passionate about this because we're still making lots of mistakes as a culture. Dads and moms both working to maintain a particular lifestyle, better to move out of the area. Better move out of the area. The Jews were not faithful in communicating the gospel message from generation to generation. So when the Messiah showed up, John chapter 1, Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own people, those who were supposed to keep the feast of unleavened bread, those who were supposed to hear year after year about salvation by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb, and they missed it. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Not only did they not receive him, they killed him. That's not remembering, that's not reliving, and that's not teaching forsaking these basic commands to train up our children in the way of the faith, it's already borne horrible consequences, horrible fruit in our own association, in our own denomination. The SBC came out, Southern Baptist Convention came out with data last year. If this doesn't compel you, parents, to get really serious about doing whatever you need to do to raise up your children to know Christ, I don't know what will. 70 to 88% pending upon the poll of children raised in the church, made professions of faith, and got baptiz- baptized within two years of going away to college, reject Christ and stop attending church. 88%. It is horrific. Many people are blaming the churches, and I, I, I certainly believe that churches have some responsibility, but according to my rendering of the Bible, it's parents. Parents, you are responsible for training up your children and the way they should go so that when they are older, they will not depart from it. It's in the home. It's in the home. All right, so number one, I pray that you call, you see we're called to remember our faith, we're called to teach our faith. Lastly, and then I'll close, expressing our faith. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover Feast, it was a commemorative feast. It was to be memorial in nature. And that makes sense, right? I mean, the, they had one exodus from Egypt. That one night it took place. So after that, every time they would sacrifice a lamb or eat the bitter herbs or strap on their sandals and their belt, they'd be doing it to remember and participate as faithful believers in the great work of God. But it was only to be remembered. It's the same for us with Christ. We remember and we participate in the once and for all resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not like the Catholics. The Catholics believe that Jesus is crucified every single time they take the Lord's Supper. Every time. We don't believe that. And we don't believe that because that's not what the Bible teaches. Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God By a single offering, listen, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One sacrifice for the sins of many. We don't re-crucify Christ again and again. It is a horrific thought. It cannot be repeated, nor do we want to repeat it, but it can be remembered. And in our remembering it, when we take the Lord's Supper, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you know that his body was broken, and his blood was spilled to save you, you then have access to come into the presence of God boldly. Hebrews chapter 10, again, we can, through remembering the work of Christ, have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb, and draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water water in other words with christ as your sacrificial lamb you have been the hyssop has covered you with blood and you can therefore come into a church like this and not be terrified that god is going to put you to death for your sins because you are safe in jesus christ it means you can come before god without a legitimate fear that the destroyer will not pass over you but will strike you dead because of your sins and transgressions Verse 27, he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, those who repented, those who believed. Do you see what their response was? They bowed down, they worshiped. They bowed and they worshiped. This is the right response to God's saving grace. The last time... The Israelites bowed down was in Exodus chapter 4. Remember? They got the great news. They bowed down. From that point in time, they grumbled. But after nine plagues and them being spared again and again, here the tenth plague is coming. The destroyer is going to come through the land. And God says, Do this and you will live. And they did, and they lived, and they bowed, and they worshiped God. It is the right expression, my beloved, if you've been set free in Christ. It is the right expression if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and made a son or daughter of our holy King. Knowing in your heart that Jesus' blood was shed for you, that God through Christ passes over you, and on that great day of judgment will pass over you, that you will not stand condemned because of the work of Christ. Knowing that truth will cause you to worship and obey the more you understand the sacrifice of Christ, the more you adore the Savior, the more you'll want to worship Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You'll be overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude that will fill your days. That God would be so merciful to a sinner like you or me is an overwhelming joy. You'll be overcome with an infinite, all-encompassing love As you express your love for Him, experiencing His provision and His watch care and His guidance every single day, you will strive to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will be compelled to tell others how good He is. And when you find yourself worshiping God like this, you'll find something else. You'll obey. You'll obey. You see, the big difference between the gospel of grace and other religions, the religions say this is what God said to do, command, or you're condemned. The gospel of grace says you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now obey out of love. That's what makes it so glorious, my beloved. Look at verse 27 again, the latter part. The people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The emphasis is important. A right worship of the living God through the shed blood of Christ will produce, listen, it will produce obedience in your life. It will. Worshiping God leads to obedience. So that means, my beloved, if you come to church on Sunday and you sing as loud as you can and you participate in the prayers of the saints and maybe you're even going to take the communion elements but then you leave here and you live a life of hypocrisy No obedience, no submission, no desire to know. It's not true worship. It's a sham. It's a sham. You remember when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 15? You say, well, of course not. I don't. But you will this. King Saul is told by God to go and kill all the Amalekites. Every man, woman, and child, and all their beasts to plunder the land and take no possession. You remember what King Saul did. He went and he killed the Amalekites, but he spared King Agag, and then he took their livestock. Samuel shows up, the last Old Testament judge, and he says to Saul, Saul's begging for mercy. Listen to what he said to Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Samuel said, Behold, listen to Listen, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. Obedience is true worship to the living God. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 23 when speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Listen to what he said, Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You cannot separate worship and obedience. If you've successfully done that in your life, you are not worshiping the living God. If somehow you've worked out in your life a functional religion, where you pray now and then, you read your Bible now and then, you go to church now and then, but you're not striving to know and obey the living God, then it's a false worship and it's a false God. You cannot separate the worship of God and obedience to Him from the heart. Worship is obeying God. Imagine for a minute if the Israelites, the elders, they heard the instructions from Moses, Moses said, now go tell your respective tribes what they need to do. Now the information they had was life and death. The elders had to go back and tell them, you got to sacrifice the lamb. you got to take the blood. you got to smear it in the door. you got to put on your sandals and your belt and your staff. you got to eat bitter herbs and no leaven. And then stay in that house and you'll live. Imagine if these elders, they bowed down, they worshiped, and they went home and didn't say anything didn't report the commands of God, did not obey the commands of God. The angel would have come, and the firstborn in all those homes would have died too. So whatever they would have been doing, bowing and worshiping, would have been in pretense only, maybe a show. It's no different with us. We are caught in a culture of impotent, powerless Christianity because we worship without obedience. God hates it. He hates it. If you go to church and you read your Bible, you spend some time in prayer, maybe you even tend the Bible study, but you're not striving to know and actively obey the word of God, you're not actively pursuing a love relationship with God, you're not actively pursuing a love relationship with your neighbors, using your gifts to edify the church, You can sing all the songs you want. You can engage in all the theological debates you want. You can listen to all the great pastors and all the great sermons and all the best podcasts. But like the Pharisees, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. My beloved, if you know Christ, you've been given the same orders Moses gave to the elders. Go tell the people that they might live. If you are not faithfully telling people that the angel of death, the destroyer, is going to come and apart from the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, they too will perish, then you are disobeying and you cannot be worshiping. What do you do if you're in that wretched condition? And what do you do? First, seek forgiveness from God. Ask God to forgive you for professing His name and not obeying His word. It's that simple. Secondly, Know the precious blood of the Lamb. Set your eyes upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, worship. Be rightly captivated again today as you were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago. Be rightly captivated by Christ. Have your heart swallowed up by Him. Captivated by His sacrifice. Captivated by His mercy. Captivated by his desire to save you and have you and love you forever. You see, my friend, you don't have to beg a captivated heart to do anything. Your heart captivated will want to obey. Your brother or sister's heart captivated will want to obey. So if you are, as many pastors are, tired of trying to get their brothers or sisters to be faithful in their church attendance or in their prayer life or in their Bible study or their evangelism, instead of telling them over and over and over again to do those things, better biblical gospel strategy, and here it is, last words, help them to remember the greatness and goodness of God saving them in Christ. Help them remember that. Tell them about the glories of Jesus again and again. Get them to cast their eyes upon a crucified, risen Savior again and again. Get their hearts captured by Christ again. And if you do that, they will worship. And as they worship, they will want to obey. True worship always manifests itself in obedience to the living God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us for not remembering well, that you would take this time that we've had to sing and to pray and to proclaim the gospel and in a moment remember the death of Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would use this time of remembrance to not only recall the precious blood of our Savior causing us to worship the Lamb of God but I pray, Lord, that it would be a participation in an expression of our faith that by taking the bread and drinking the juice, we are saying, yes, I believe. Yes, I've given my life. Father, I ask that we be faithful as parents and grandparents and as brothers and sisters to train up our children. Souls, eternal souls hang in the balance. Help us fight off well the temptation of this culture to forsake our children for the prestige and popularity that our friends will enjoy. I ask as well, Father, that you would help us rightly express our faith through worship and obedience. Compel Cambrian Park Baptist Church to not just be a church that gathers once a week, that sings a little bit and prays a little bit, but that does not seek to obey your word. Make us knowledgeable of it, and then through our worship to you, Compel us to obey out of our love. I ask all so that you would do this for our own well-being, for our children, for this community, Cambrian Park, but most of all for your own glory, that you would be glorified in the great work you do here. In Jesus' name, amen.